this week, a science fiction special. We find out how Star Trek can be used to teach ethics. In just 35, 40 minutes, it introduces half of a medical ethics curriculum. And the works of science fiction that inspired real science. The movie Gattaca really captured thinking about the ultimate future of genetic control. It seemed fantastical at the time, like impossible. Plus, in a break from all the sci-fi, we take a look at how to get agricultural theory into the hands of farmers. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 8th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Science fiction writer H.G. Wells was born 150 years ago this month. 100 years later, and the first episode of Star Trek was aired. What better excuses could we have for a sci-fi special? And for our resident Trekkie, Shamini Bundell, this was the perfect opportunity to revise her Star Trek trivia. As she found out, she's not the only one studying up on the show for their coursework. In the now 50 years since Star Trek first aired, technology has progressed massively. And many scientists and engineers have taken inspiration from Star Trek's transporters, phasers, pads and warp engines. But science fiction has always been about much more than futuristic technology. And researchers and educators in different fields have been making use of Star Trek in discussions of ethics. I've always been a fan of Star Trek, partly because of my interest in technology. But, you know, there was also all the human and what I later realised were moral elements to the show. Andy Lau is an Associate Professor of Engineering at Penn State and leads a weekly seminar that aims to get students talking about ethics. When you're talking about ethical issues, it often helps to talk about people that are different so that you can analyze it more objectively. So with Star Trek, it is other in time and place, but it's not so other in the role of technology and the potential for technology. Watching particular episodes allows Andy's classes to cover a whole range of topics. For example, the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man. This explores the legal rights of a robot, the character called Data. When a Starfleet scientist wants to temporarily dismantle him to see how he works, Data refuses. But does he have the right to say no? Because he's sort of treated by Starfleet as property, he is basically put on trial and they reason through in that episode what is it that deserves that kind of consideration. You are endowing Data with human characteristics because it looks human, but it is not. If it were a box on wheels, I would not be facing this opposition. And that's where they start to get into, well, what is it that qualifies as deserving rights? Now, the decision you reach here today will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. Who deserves rights and who doesn't is a question that clearly applies to more than just futuristic humanoid robots. But some issues in this fictional 24th century world have even more obvious relevance to modern life. Some years ago, James Hughes was teaching a course on medical ethics. He found an episode of, again, Star Trek The Next Generation that touched on a whole range of relevant topics. I am not merely injured, Commander. Dr. Crusher believes my paralysis to be permanent. So this particular episode 
Worf, who's a Klingon, uh, it starts with him becoming basically a paraplegic. And he says that in Klingon culture, paraplegics have to commit suicide. When a Klingon can no longer stand and faces enemies as a warrior, it is time for the Hepbar. Time for him to die. The captain, Picard, counsels Riker, who, the first mate, who's been asked by Worf to help him commit suicide. I have always tried to keep an open mind, not to judge someone else's culture by my own. But for me to be part of this ceremony... No, we don't have to agree with it. We don't have to understand it. But we do have to respect his beliefs. The captain counsels the first mate to assist, and the first mate refuses. And the doctor also refuses on the grounds of her medical paternalism, that she doesn't care about his cultural difference. I'll put him in a restraining field and post security around his door before I let him commit suicide. And how long will you keep him there? A week? A month? A year? If I have to, suicide is not an option. She's basically saying you cannot be a compass mentis person and want to commit suicide. And the captain is of the completely opposite opinion. That for Worf, this is a completely understandable, rational decision that has to be respected. And I think we haven't figured that out, really. There's a huge gray area around the world, and this really points up some of the, the key issues. As the story develops, even more ethical issues are raised. An experimental doctor enters the picture who has a procedure that hasn't even been tried on living beings and has only got a 30% chance of being survived. There's a real chance this could work. And if it does, it'll be a major breakthrough in neurogenics that will change a lot of people's lives. You're using the desperation of an injured man as an excuse to try a procedure that you couldn't do under normal circumstances. Basically, she's exploiting the desperation of his suicidal intent, which is what some people accuse all experimental medicine of doing. The famous quote from this is uh, Beverly Crusher says, The first tenet of good medicine is never make the patient any worse. Right now, Worf is alive and functioning. If he goes into that operation, he could come out a corpse. And then the captain says back to her, This may not be good medicine, but for Worf, it may be his only choice. Already you've introduced like a dozen different topics. You've introduced adapting to disability, assisted suicide, the boundaries of respect for cultural difference, medical paternalism versus autonomy, risk-benefit ratios in experimental medicine, utilitarian justifications for using experimental medicine. So this episode really, in just a, in a short, you know, 35, 40 minutes, it introduces half of a medical ethics curriculum for discussion. James's students were studying a course on medical ethics, but more and more universities are including modules on things like ethics or the history and philosophy of science as part of courses that have traditionally been pure science. Courses like James's and Andy's could be an excellent way of getting students interested in the broader issues of their subject. It's about not just dissecting and reducing things to their parts and understanding them that way, but it's not it's seeing how they function as a whole, but even more bigger picture, how do they function in their use in society? How do they impact society? And how can we have a more positive impact on society? That was Andy Lau of Penn State University, and before him you heard from James Hughes, sociologist and bioethicist, and executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies.
Don't worry, nature is not neglecting H.G. Wells's 150th birthday. There's an essay about his prolific writing in nature and elsewhere, and we've got a video featuring five things you might not know about the author. Find that at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Star Trek isn't the only science fiction work to inspire ethical hand-wringing. For CRISPR pioneer Jennifer Doudna, one film in particular got her thinking. Genetics, what can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. One of the works of science fiction that has been influential to me, certainly, is the movie Gattaca, um, which was a 1997 uh, science fiction film that centered on the idea of a eugenics program that was you know, built around trying to make perfect people by, by genome engineering. You have specified hazel eyes, dark hair. I've taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions, uh, premature baldness, myopia, alcoholism, and addictive susceptibility. Uh, we were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. We want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. In 97, I was a, an assistant professor at Yale University, where I had my first faculty position. And I was actually working on how uh, molecules that are chemical relatives of DNA, called RNA, can influence the way that uh, genes are expressed in cells. And somehow, the movie Gattaca really captured the, you know, thinking about the ultimate future of genetic control. It seemed fantastical at the time, like impossible, really. Neurological condition, 60% probability. Manic depression, 42% probability. Heart disorder, 99% probability. Life expectancy, 30.2 years. 30 years. Later, when we were working on the CRISPR technology and thinking about all of the implications of that for genome editing, I, I began discussing this movie with members of my own lab. And for me personally, it was one of the things that motivated me to get involved in the ethical discussions around this precision genome engineering technology that can be, in principle at least, uh, employed in uh, human embryos. It's, it's a very interesting experience to see something that started off at, in my own mind, and with this movie certainly, as, as complete fiction, now becoming something that is uh, actually on the horizon for, for our society. That was Jennifer Doudna, who's at the University of California, Berkeley. Stay tuned, because later in the show we'll be finding out the sci-fi stories that inspired an evolutionary biologist and an astronomer. Now, though, a brief break from the sci-fi. The world needs to find ways of growing more food. There are more and more people, but there isn't more and more land to grow stuff on. So that means we have to make the most of the farmland we have. Usually on the Nature Podcast, we talk about doing that with new breeds of crops or developing cutting-edge new farming practices. But a study in China shows that farmers can achieve big boosts in yields without employing high-tech tools. Here's Leah Sandberg, who's written in News and Views on the study. So there's sort of two pieces to increasing productivity. There's sort of increasing the ceiling, which is sort of saying, how do we improve, improve the state of technology so that crops can be more productive? The other side of that is, well, what farmers are growing in their fields doesn't actually reach even the current level of possible productivity for a whole number of reasons, because nature is messy. 
and farming is messy. So the first piece of sort of increasing productivity is raising the ceiling. And the second piece of it is sort of raising the floor to decrease the gap between what farmers are getting on their fields and what the potential for that crop is. So this paper that's coming out this week is looking at the second, I suppose, of those approaches, how to, how to raise the floor. What exactly were they trying to do? The first thing that they're really looking at is nutrients. Are they getting enough nutrients? It's all about nutrient management. And what this study does that's really interesting is they really go beyond that and they sort of say, what are all of the little other pieces involved in increasing productivity? What are the, what are the many, many things that are keeping farmers from achieving sort of ideal yields on their farms? And they found all sorts of really interesting things. Um, they found that the plows that were being offered were actually not the right size for the fields that farmers had. Um, they found that, that they were sort of having trouble getting information in the market about what kind of seeds to buy. So they really sort of went below the surface to say what are the limitations that farmers are actually encountering in their efforts to increase yields and how can we reduce those ground scale limitations. And to reduce those limitations, they really did a lot of work with the farmers. There was training and regular information transfer and things like that. But they also put on competitions and a festival. Let's hear now from one of the researchers, Wei Feng Zhang, on why these kinds of events were important for the study. In the beginning of our work in the, in the village, we do not think it's, it's important. But after some months, and uh, we find it's very important because you know the trust. The farmers, they have very limited education in China. So they usually like to do things based on their own experience and even the experience from their fathers and their maybe cousins or all these kind of people. So we are foreigners. We, 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 are, we are not the local people. So the first step is build up trust. So seeing, dancing and uh, live together, this helps us to build a trust relationship with the farmers. It's very important. So back to you now, Leah. Employing all these different approaches from putting on festivals to changing plough sizes, what did the researchers actually see? How did the amount of food the farmers were able to grow compare to the ideal amount that the researchers were able to get at their research station? This study lasted for five years for two crops, for maize, uh, which is corn, and for wheat. And over sort of the course of that five years, they found that in the fields of the farmers with whom they were working very closely and very intensively, the gap between the farmer's fields and the research station um, decreased significantly. They said in the first year, farmers got um, about 68% of the yield that was attainable on the research station. And by the end of five years, they had reached about 97% of that yield on, this, on the research station. I mean, these differences sound kind of phenomenal. Should we just be rolling out these techniques everywhere we can? <laughs> that would be great. And ideally, you know, there's a lot about these techniques that are really, really, really admirable. It was exciting to see these numbers, and it's promising to see these sort of short-term immediate improvements. And, you know, I think the question really is, over the long term, there's huge amounts of variability in, in all sorts of things in a farming system. And so the next question is, how do, these, how do these increases really hold up over time? So when I sort of saw these numbers, I sort of said, let's see if it works in the long run, because that's really what matters for farmers. You know, farmers 
don't survive on a couple of really good years. They really need to be able to maintain consistent um, returns over, over a long time to really be sustainable. The fact is that increasing yields of any one crop is not necessarily the best strategy for a small farmer. Prices for that crop may vary year to year, that crop might have pests, but improving their access to information and technology is always going to be a good thing. That was Leah Sandberg, who's based at the University of Minnesota in the US. You also heard from Weifeng Zhang, one of the lead researchers on the study. He's at China Agricultural University, Beijing. And you can find his paper and the news and views in the usual place. Coming up in the research highlights, we look at some lazy birds and some overactive galaxy clusters. But first, it's the second of our three scientists inspired by science fiction. Astronomer Brian Gainsler talks us through a tale of two twins. It has been a century since the inception of interplanetary travel. Man has spread through the solar system. We need more planets like this gentleman we are standing on. And there are more, many more. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the stars. I love science fiction, but the book that I keep coming back to is Time for the Stars by Robert Heinlein, about two twins. One stays on Earth and one journeys through the stars and they communicate with each other through telepathy. The Long Range Foundation proposed to send out a dozen more starships in all directions. The ships might be gone a long time. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where you are indispensable to this great project for living room. For you will be the means whereby the captains of those ships report back what they have found. It's a fantastic mix of things that are pure science fiction, telepathy, but also um, real hard science, special relativity. One twin ages faster than the other uh, because the other twin is going close to the speed of light. See that? He pointed at the display scope, still tirelessly making a peak every second. That's the Greenwich time tick, pulled in by radio and corrected for relative speed and change of speed. Then there is the time you were getting from your brother and passing to us. The first time I read Time for the Stars, I didn't know a lot of physics. I was a child. And, you know, the core of this book is the idea of time dilation, of special relativity, uh, that if you travel close to the speed of light, your clocks and your aging slow down. He looked me up and down, then said wonderingly, I knew intellectually that you would not have changed with the years, but to see it, to realize it, is quite another thing, eh? The picture of Dorian Gray. His voice was old. I'm sure I just figured this was just part of the story, but I do remember finding out for the first time that this was real, that if you really did travel close to the speed of light, you would age more slowly. And I was blown away that something that I first thought was science fiction was actually physics. I did begin to see why we had not made a big splash in the news. Colony planets were the rage, and there was a new one every day. So why should anyone be excited over one that we had found 60 years back? We were going to be a short paragraph in history and a footnote in science books. There wasn't room for us in the news. I decided that even a footnote averaged well and forgot it. I had already decided I wanted to be an astronomer long before I read this book. Um, but I think there was always this concern that physics and science and astronomy was this very boring option that had no creativity and it was dull and I was sort of sacrificing my life to, to numbers and rules. But books like Time for the Stars assured me that there was incredible creativity and excitement and wonder within the path that I'd chosen for myself. That was Brian Gainsler from the University of Toronto.
Still to come, the latest factual stories from space. That's in the news chat. But now we've got our favourite research from elsewhere. It's the research highlights read this week by Shamini Bandel. It pays to be a lazy bustard. In Spain, some of these birds migrate north during the summer to escape the heat. Others can't be bothered and stay put. Researchers monitoring a group of bustards found that over a fifth making the trip were killed hitting power lines, a lot more than for the birds that stayed behind. Over the course of five years, the researchers also noticed fewer and fewer bustards were migrating. The bustards might decide whether or not to travel based on what they see each other doing. Find that study in Conservation Biology. Early galaxy clusters were busier than their modern counterparts. Clusters are formed when galaxies group together. And when this happens, galaxies often stop producing stars. Looking at very distant galaxies allows us to see how clusters behaved almost 10 billion years ago. Astronomers noticed that in these older clusters, galaxies were more likely to still be churning out stars. Working out why galaxy clusters behave differently now could help physicists work out why this quenching of star production happens in the first place. For the paper, head to astronomy and astrophysics. Are you a long-term listener or have you only recently downloaded your very first nature podcast? Either way, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Drop us an email, podcast at nature.com, a tweet at naturepodcast, or leave us a review on iTunes. Huge thanks to those who have done so already, including The White Tornado, who's been listening for a full decade. Thanks also to Shuffling Bee, who says that the podcast team enjoying what we do gives the show its extra zing. We're glad our insatiable enthusiasm comes across. Woohoo! Stay tuned because the final of our sci-fi scientists is still to come. Whose work could have been inspired by The Truman Show? Adam, you'll be delighted to know after all this science fiction that there is still a whole eight minutes of science fact still to come. It's the news chat. But wait, there happen to be some components in some of these stories that have a little bit of the sci-fi about them. So I thought you might like to guess which of these things will feature in the news chat and are completely science fact and which ones are science fiction and completely fabricated. I am ready to go. Are the following science fact or science fiction? There are areas on Mars dubbed... Mars Extraordinary Regions. I would love that to be true. And there surely must be extraordinary regions on Mars. I'm going to say true. Science faction. Science faction for Mars Extraordinary Regions. How about this? There is a company called Deep Space Industries. I can't... It's a terrible name. And is there or is there not an asteroid whose name is Benjamin? I... I can believe in Benjamin the asteroid. So you believe that there are, in fact, Mars Extraordinary Regions. A company called Deep Space Industries sounds... I can't believe that for some reason. <laughs> I totally made up. And an asteroid called Benjamin? Yes. You're okay I with that? I can believe that. I'm down with Benjamin. Now, okay, so listen out for the answers during this news chat with Lizzie Gibney. Now, we are off to space, to Mars, where the Curiosity rover doesn't really want to get its feet wet. <laughs> I think it would love to get its feet wet, but it really isn't allowed, is the problem. Um, so at the moment, Curiosity is down there on the surface of Mars, and it's been there since 2012, and it has its little planned out route. But NASA scientists have a bit of a conundrum at the moment, because the planned route would take Curiosity past, or at least relatively near, I think um, possibly two kilometres away, from these dark streaks. Um, 
um, that have only quite recently been seen on Mars in the last five years or so that look like they might be um, seasonal water seeping down these slopes. And the problem is there are some really strict international rules that say that a rover is not allowed to go even near some of these regions because if they if they are both relatively warm and have water, they're the kind of place that could harbour life and you don't want to contaminate them. And they're not necessarily planning to examine these streaks. They're actually on their way somewhere else. Exactly. They, they're on their way up into a high region. They want to look at uh, formations from billions of years ago. They're looking for more ancient life or signs that life once existed on Mars. And they're not actually trying to look out for life on Mars at this moment that might exist in these uh, wetter regions. So on its way to these older formations then, past it goes, past all these fields of streaks. I mean, what exactly do we know about these things? Well, there are a few hundred that we've spotted now so far. And basically, they are just um, yeah, dark streaks in these slopes that uh, that come and go. Um, and there are several theories as to how they might form. The leading idea is that they, they might form when, when Mars's surface warms up just a little bit and some kind of ice dam thaws in the soil and it begins to seep down. Um, it might also be that it's actually water in brine. And so the seeps would happen at a lower temperature than they would with with fresher water and actually I mean th- th- there is a chance it's not water but I think at the moment that is the the leading idea um, and so curiosity is already trying to study them but from afar and um, so this is one of the big issues actually is just how near to these these possible water sites can curiosity go um, and this just isn't something that NASA's really had to think about very much before presumably they are being somewhat Overcautious, though, because it might not be that anything could survive. I mean, this might, or this hypothesis might be a damp squib. It could be. It could be. We, I mean, we don't know if there are any microbes that could contaminate Mars on Curiosity, and we don't know if they would survive even if they did get into one of these, you know, relatively more habitable zones on the planet. But that's just a risk that we can't take. And poor little Curiosity then has to stay away from these very interesting streaks. But what about future uh, descendants of the rover? Um, Could we have a closer look at them next time we go to Mars? Well, the next couple of missions, at least that I'm aware of, so uh, Mars 2020, which is NASA's uh, next rover, and ExoMars, so that's the European Space Agency's next Mars rover, both of them are still not allowed to go to what these these potential water regions, which are known as Mars special regions. So they might be able to get a little bit closer and have better instruments that will mean they can study them from afar so we can learn more about them. But at least for, for now, we're not actually allowed to go and investigate them directly, even though scientists would absolutely love to. Just a little teaspoon, exactly. just a tiny little scoop, <laughs> just a wee little bit. It would be fascinating, but for now, uh, we have to study them from afar. The Mars rover Curiosity launched four years ago, um, but something at the very beginning of its space journey trajectory is another mission called OSIRIS-REx. Yes, so OSIRIS-REx is another NASA mission, but instead of going up to a planet, this one is going to an asteroid. It's an asteroid called Bennu, and the idea is uh, to go there and actually grab a little tiny bit of asteroid dust material and bring it back to Earth. And so, unlike Curiosity that can't put its teaspoon anywhere near any of the uh, streaks, it doesn't matter what OSIRIS-REx gets from Bennu. Presumably we think it's pretty dry or... We are fairly certain that there is no life on Bennu. Um, it, has a, it gets an awful lot of radiation and it's a very small asteroid, so I think it'd be very unlikely 
unlikely if they did. But what we are looking for are amino acids and other kind of organic materials. It's a bit similar to when people go out and study comets as well, as we've heard a lot about the Rosetta mission. What you're looking at when you look at asteroids is this kind of pristine body from the beginning of the solar system. And it might have lots of clues about how the solar system formed and all the different materials that were present then and um, possibly how some of those ended up on Earth, including you know, how life formed. That's what the scientists are after. But there's another group of people also interested in asteroids. For what reason? So asteroids are, as well as being scientifically fascinating, are very interesting because they're also filled with lots of precious metals. So you've got lots of iron and nickel and I think some platinum-based compounds that are worth quite a lot of money. And so there are a few companies now who are out there who have been for a couple of years planning how to maybe go out and mine an asteroid. What's novel about this NASA mission, Bennu, is that they're going to collect a relatively large amount of asteroid material. So when I say relatively large, this is about 60 grams. So, you know, what, what's that in teaspoons? Yeah. <laughs> maybe That's about two, um, two or three teaspoons. <laughs> Still not an enormous amount, uh, but much more than, I think, a similar mission, Hayabusa 2, which is being run by the Japanese Space Agency, and that's going to collect just one gram. So that gives you an idea. And and the way that they're going to do it... It's not even worth getting a teaspoon out for exactly. that. Exactly. It's a sprinkle. I'd say that's a pinch, maybe. And so what... Uh, so this is... This uh, OSIRIS-REx mission is a bit of a proof of concept, really. So they have this uh, mechanical arm that comes down and kind of suction cup. So I think the idea is that if that method works, that's something that um, some other, some companies in the future might think to use. And there are, as we just learned, international rules about not going too close to any water on Mars. But are there any international rules that govern whether you can just mine the shears out of an asteroid? There absolutely are. Um, well, it's a kind of a, it's a bit confusing, really. So there's a UN treaty, and that um, that dates back to 1967, and it says that outer space, so that includes the moon and all other bodies, is off limits to sovereign claims. So you can't claim any of those for your own. Now, the conflict comes in because uh, quite recently, just last autumn, in fact, the US brought in a law that allows commercial exploration and, and the taking of resources from asteroids. Um, so then there's this question, well, can you can you mine an asteroid that you don't own? It all seems very vague, but that hasn't stopped these companies. So there are a few, um, Deep Space Industries is one of the most most famous ones, from, from planning these missions. And I think they, the Deep Space Industry is looking at potentially a launch as soon as 2019. It's really good that in this special sci-fi issue, there is a company in the non-fiction section called Deep Space Industries. And we've also been talking about international Mars laws. I'm really appreciating that. Happy to help. (laughs) Now, to conclude then, we have had Mars Curiosity doing its stuff on the surface of the Red Planet. We've had OSIRIS-REx just launching, just freshly minted and off to the asteroid. And where does this story, as it were, this trajectory end for us this week? Well, the last little thing to note is that Philae, the ever so plucky lander that went to Comet 67P, has been found finally on the surface. So people have been looking out for it. The Rosetta Orbiter has been trying to spot Philae for two years now that it's been there. And finally, they they have found it. So it's it is one of the spots that they thought was a strong candidate, but previously it was just a little tiny glint, a reflection. And now they've got some really lovely close-up images from just a couple of kilometres off the surface of the comet, and you can see it sitting there. And it is exactly as they suspected from all the data that they received. It's at an angle. It's got one leg kind of up in the air. There's only one month left before Rosetta itself crashes into the comet, and it's the full end of the mission. Um, but so it's not 
just that they've found Philo, so that's a lovely thing for them to have done, but it's actually really useful because they have a whole bunch of data that they receive from the lander and ha- knowing exactly where it is and what angle it's at and, and everything about its surroundings helps them better to interpret all that data that they already have. So it's also very scientifically useful. So are you, Lizzie. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Kerry. So to recap then, Adam, Mars' extraordinary regions are in fact called Mars' special regions. So close. There is a company called Deep Space Industries who are thinking of mining this asteroid. And the name of the asteroid that NASA is going to, not quite Benjamin, but Bennu. So maybe an abbreviation. So I got naught out of three. I suppose on the plus side, it can't get any worse. So next quiz. And there will be future quizzes. I eagerly await their arrival. Time now, though, for our last look of the show at the stories that inspired researchers. Here's evolutionary biologist Rob Brooks telling us about the film that caught his imagination. It's all true. It's all real. Nothing here is fake. Nothing you see on this show is fake. It's merely controlled. The piece of science fiction that I have most been influenced by is actually The Truman Show, which you might not think of as science fiction, but um, it's a sort of dystopic prediction of, of human relationships, and that's really where I'm interested. It's really a commentary on uh, the old spurious debate of nature and nurture and whether we're shaped by our environments or whether we're shaped by something inherent to us like our genes. As Truman grew up, we were forced to manufacture ways to keep him on the island. I like to be an explorer, like the Great Magellan. Oh, you're too late. There's really nothing left to explore. I was um, sort of killing a few days between two conferences in uh, North America. And I went to see a movie and the Truman Show looked pretty good. And I watched it and I came out so inspired that I sort of went to the car that I'd hired and I scrawled notes into my notebook, you know, pages and pages of notes because it inspired me. It really crystallized some of the things that I'd been thinking. I suddenly realized that the vision in the Truman Show is one of um, a manipulation of a human being um, via the environment that was entirely deterministic. Cue the sun. The environment can be just as deterministic as genes can be. I saw an equivalence there between the two types of determinism, and I thought, well, you know, that's pretty cool. Truman. Who are you? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. So, you know, the big climax of the Truman Show is when Truman finally figures out that he's been manipulated all his life, and yet he still exerts free will. And he walks off the set and he says, never had a camera in my head. So as a piece of futurism, the Truman Show was spot on, perhaps even a little bit unambitious. I still teach, I still have a slide about the Truman Show in my animal behavior course, and it encouraged me to explore the, you know, writing and thinking about what it means to be human and the relationship between uh, biology and culture and genes and environment. That was Rob Brooks, who's at the University of New South Wales in Australia. 
And that's it for this week's science fiction show. But if you haven't quite got your fill of these fantastical worlds, then head over to nature.com slash sci-fi special, where there's plenty to inspire your curiosity, including an original graphic novel. We'll be back at the same time next week, but if you can't wait that long to hear from us, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Climate Adam. And at Minnie Kerry. See you next time. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>